Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company and want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.bc. The title sponsor for this season of Origins is Carta. This season is also supported by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Carta simplifies how startups and investors manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. They also offer fund administration, where you can see real-time data in the Carta platform and work with their team of experienced fund accountants. We've been happy customers with Carta for a few years now, and we're thrilled to have them as our title sponsor. Go to carta.com slash notation to get 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SBB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form both Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Kanye Makubela is a co-founder of Kindred Ventures, an early-stage venture firm based in San Francisco. Previous to Kindred, he was a partner at Collaborative Fund. He's been a startup founder and advisor to countless startups and has been a friend for a long time. So I'm, I'm so excited to do this because I think I've been asking you to do an Origins episode for four years, maybe, and we've been friends for much longer and collaborators. So I'm just so excited to do this. Thank you for doing it. Thanks, Nick. So start at the beginning. Okay. So I'm an American African. I was born in South Africa in the 80s. I came to the United States uh, as a refugee with my parents um, coming out of apartheid. We uh, landed in New York City. And after a series of early twists and turns, managed our way to the beautiful idyllic campus of uh, Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, where my parents were high school teachers. Yeah. And so I grew up on that campus. And so I'm a, a fac brat, a faculty brat is what they call, what they call it. Uh, so I grew up around education. Your father is now the headmaster. Uh, my father is now the headmaster of a different school. Yeah. He's oh, okay. Now the headmaster okay. of a different school. But he, of where? Uh, of the Groton School, which is also That's in right. Massachusetts. Yeah. An amazing story. What was it like growing up on a campus like that? It's it's a good question. In retrospect, it was bizarrely perfect. Yeah. Uh, in the moment, in the moment, it was pretty ho hum and and pedestrian because I didn't have any other reference points. But it was fascinating to have a ever refreshing group of uh, intrinsically motivated and geographically, economically, and and demographically diverse. 14 to 18 year olds always hovering around. Uh, It was just a a little bit of an odd thing. And so as a result, I have the extraordinary good fortune of having met and interacted with so many people from literally all over the world over the course of my growing up, 
uh, who were there for school. And so that part was fabulous. And the other thing that I thought was really great, which is going to play somewhat ironically if, as I tell the rest of my story, is that uh, education ended up being the sort of centerpiece of my identity and the centerpiece also of, um, of my life because I was growing up on a, on a residential boarding school campus and my parents were teachers. My mom's dad was a teacher. My dad's mom was a teacher. My dad's mom's dad was a teacher. Wow. And so it, it runs really, really, really deep in, in my family sort of culture. Have you ever taught? I have taught. Yes, I taught. I've taught at every level. I, I've taught undergrad. I've taught um, high school. I've taught middle school. I've taught elementary school. And I will probably do it some version of it uh, for the rest of my life because it's something that I think uh, is imprinted on my DNA in the same way that, you know, other things are. So I grew up there um, and I ended up choosing to go out to Stanford. And uh, I chose to go out to Stanford for a couple of reasons. Uh, the sort of trivial, but one that I actually told myself at the time was for the weather. What I really meant then was I needed a change of pace. I needed a change of context and I needed to refresh my thinking. And I felt a little bit constrained culturally, emotionally, psychologically uh, by the, by the new England thing. Uh, yeah. I needed something different. And going to Stanford in the early 2000s was a fascinating time to be there. I was just thinking about this before we got on the call. Uh, one of the things I like to track about Stanford is the most popular major and even their rankings. And so in the 1950s, it was uh, liberal arts. In the 60s, it was history. 70s, it was psych. 80s, it was econ. 90s, it was bio. Um, when I got there, the number one major uh, at Stanford I believe was human biology. A close second was economics. Third was mm. biological sciences. Fourth was international relations. Fifth was poli sci. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. I'd imagine CS was in there like for a second in the nineties. Uh, in the very, very, very late nineties, there was a, there was yeah. a spike. Yeah, there was a spike. Yeah. And it was, it was as, as sharp a spike on the upswing as it was on the downswing. Um, and the funny thing is right now, CS I think has more majors than the next five majors combined. And so it's something like, you know, 350 graduates wow. of CS and hundred of Humbio, a hundred of other engineering, 90 of econ. And that's been persistent over the last maybe four or five years. But anyway, the reason that I share that is when I, when I went to Stanford, I didn't go to the sort of land of Silicon Valley startup Valhalla. Uh, I went, somewhere far away that was sunny and warm and optimistic. And I went there because I needed to change my perspective on the world. And anyone who was doing startups in 2002, 2003, 2004 was a little bit of a gadfly, gadzook on the margins of yeah. society because this was right after the, the biggest bust in, in the history of technology in some sense, right? And so um, it was, it was a, an, an odd time to be arriving at Stanford for somebody who was going to end up with a career in, in technology. I had a very similar experience in going to Hong Kong, the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology after college to get very far away and have a different experience. And um, so I was, I was four years behind you, but I did it eventually. It, 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 it was helpful. It's so important. And, you know, and to that point, you know, I, I got to Stanford trying to find a way to reset my identity and landing at Stanford, I, I ended up 
you know, stumbling my way into, into startups in the midst of trying to, to reset said identity. And so I, I happened to, by virtue of having gone to New England boarding school, have overlapped with uh, some kids at Harvard who were working on a social network and ended up being a, a, I think, something like one of the first 20 to 30 people at Stanford and one of the first maybe a thousand people to join that social network, Facebook. And it was at a time where uh, having friends, just the sheer magnitude of how many friends you had on Facebook was actually a thing. Right. And there were even yeah. there were lists that, that yeah. some, of the, some of the late tech bloggers would publish about who had Facebook friends, right? And and I and I had a, a reasonably large number of Facebook friends just because I added my whole freshman dorm, which was pretty much the same year that Facebook started. And so as a result, a guy from the business school at Stanford gave me a call and he was like, hey, can you ask all your Facebook friends uh, to, to join my new website? Because I'm in a class called Formation of New Ventures. That's a good distribution hack. <laughs> it was pretty clever. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty darn clever. Yeah, exactly. And so it, that was actually how I got... Uh, snookered into into the technology industry. I, I mm. you know, I didn't grow up with a Commodore 65. Uh, you know, I wasn't mm. a gamer. I, I thought I was going to be an engineering undergrad, but like a chemical engineering undergrad who went to grad school in engineering and then ultimately ended up doing something at the intersection of of uh, science and diplomacy. Weirdly, that was where mm. I was most interested. But when I got to Stanford, uh, I just, you know, I just got caught up in. Uh, in in that wave, and, and I got I got kind of lucky or unlucky because I got super passionate about it, and and it kind of swept me up. So you dropped out of Stanford, which I guess is now made famous by by people like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and those folks. But and, and now is maybe much more commonplace for folks to drop out of school, either undergrad or or you know graduate school programs. I imagine at that time that was an unusual, like, did you know anybody else that was dropping out of school Were your parents as lifelong educators, like terrified, like what, what I'm curious how you ultimately made that decision. And I guess maybe how unique or not so much it was at the time. The trope kind of goes, if you drop out of Harvard or Stanford, you're probably fashioning yourself against a, a Bill Gates or a Zuck. Whereas if you drop out of community college, you're probably emotionally compromised and, and destined for, for you know, a life of, of economic complication. And it's strange because uh, dropping out has this sort of moniker of being a badge of honor and a badge of mm. credibility uh, today. But I dropped out, honestly, because I just hated school and I was upset about it. I, had, I, was, I didn't feel like my identity formation was manifesting through, through college productively at all. Uh, I was American African. I wasn't African American. You know, I was interested in science, but I wasn't a techie. And and at Stanford at the time, especially judging by the nature of the majors, there were fuzzies and techies. And fuzzies were going to go to law school, investment banks, or consulting. And techies were engineers. And that was kind of it. And and I didn't feel comfortable in either of those categories. I was reasonably athletic. I had a brief stint. You know, as a as a walk on on the Stanford track team, but I was also interested in the arts. I sang college a cappella and did theater, uh, and so I just didn't have a home, just you know, from a pure identity standpoint. But then also, I was really interested in in math and science, and I was really interested in sort of innovation, and I was interested in, in breaking paradigms. And there were a couple of people in my class uh, who were were dropping out as well, and I was interested in them because they were not 
considered like, oh my gosh, that's a very well-known person who's doing a well-known thing, even though one of them was Blake Ross, the creator of Firefox. And, mm. you know, and, and the other one was, was Sam Altman who would go on to, you know, have a, an illustrious career. And so, but at the time it was like, oh, those are kind of those weird nerds that are going to go do a strange, unusual path. And in my case, it was, oh, you must be compromised. Uh, and, you know, my parents were devastated. It was, it was the hardest thing by a significant margin that I've ever done. And I wouldn't ever recommend it on anybody. So it's, it's a funny thing because I, you know, I ended up dropping back in a number of years later, uh, which, okay. was, which was important for me. But it was a dubious distinction at the time. And frankly, even still feels more like a source of shame and pain than it does like a source of credibility or anything like that. So what was the startup? Uh, it was a, it was a jobs marketplace, a peer to peer marketplace for jobs. Okay. And so uh, another one of my favorite sayings is the debate between teams and ideas and markets and how really, really great markets can, can pull okay teams or, you know, decent ideas forward. And in this case, the market was, how do you get a great job online? And it was a market for which there was a high level of urgency, a lot of dollars, and no real solution. And even today, there isn't. Mm. And so we tried to build up a invitation-only platform where you could apply for jobs and see other people's applications for jobs. And, and it ended up working reasonably well at the beginning. You know, we were able to uh, get a couple uh, thousand and then 10,000 and then 100,000 and then hundreds of thousands of, mm. of college-aged and recent graduates to you know, to find jobs. A number of my peers actually found a, a bunch of their first sort of real good job, quote unquote, on, on our website. So it was a decent experience. But what we also did, which is important to share, is we picked up the startup handbook and started checking everything off. But it turned out that it was the anti-startup handbook. So we hired a series of executives very early and we built in PHP just because Facebook was, and we had a, a, a lamp stack, and we outsourced our engineering to Russia, and we had a hierarchical culture, and we focused on vanity metrics, like all the textbook things to never do, and so failed our way forwards, and ultimately were able to exit the business, but it was uh, a sort of boot camp for me in, in how to not run a startup, which has been very helpful for what a startup should look like in my current. Yeah. How did you... Meet Craig and Collaborative Fund. Uh, Craig and I met through mutual friends. Uh, Craig had previously been president of a media company called Good Magazine. Right. Good Magazine was founded by some very, very old and close friends of mine. And I had always been sort of helping them and been a, a friend uh, of the Good family. And so when Craig got Collaborative Fund started, he was looking for some folks to, to help him build out the early version of the team and had just done a first close on fund one of, I think, $7 million. Uh, and we were introduced and, you know, we hit it off. We just shared a, a, a point of view about how um, the Internet can be a collaborative and more inclusive economy uh, where stakeholders are all participants and in a more meaningful way. And so we started working very casually together with no real agenda uh, except to just uh, be friends and for me to help him because I was living in Silicon Valley and he was living in New York. And then it proceeded to turn into a real thing. and, and uh, you know. Uh, six, seven year journey uh, from that point mm. forward. Had you, what was your interest level in venture at the time? I thought I was going to be a founder. And what I was waiting for was what at the time I thought were the two only sufficient conditions for being a founder, which were to have a problem that I was uniquely well-suited to solve or to have a problem that I obsessively had to solve. 
And so I was waiting for one of those two uh, circumstances to manifest. And so I figured I would hang around the hoop and you know, use venture as a way to stay close to startups until I figured out which one mm. I wanted to build. And then I realized that one of the things that I really liked about venture was the teaching. And I realized that being able to sort of share lessons and share uh, you know, what it's like to see hockey stick growth in, in both directions <laughs> uh, and, and how to think about teams and how to think about recruiting and engineering and, and stack design and go to market uh, was something that I was better suited for as a teacher than I was as a, as a player, I think, and, or a coach than a player, so to speak. And so when Craig was thinking about raising a new institutional fund for collaborative fund, um, you know, he, he invited me to, to be a part of it. And I talked it over with, um, with who is now my wife. And it was obvious to me that I was really enjoying it. And I seemed to have a reasonably good nose for talent and a reasonably persuasive ability to get, to get involved in front of them. And so I said, yeah, let's do it. And it was an awesome decision because I think it is a career that, that finally clicked on all of my interests. Hmm. So you were, so he was kind of the East Coast partner. You were the West Coast partner. You raised that fund together. Like what were going from, and, and given you didn't probably have a long history of like investing at that point. I had no history. What were the big learnings? I'm curious, like learnings from a fund management perspective, or maybe those came later and also just actual like startup by startup investing perspective sure i guess maybe how did you how did you improve and get better in those early years so the the thing that i always think about with startups and that i describe to people now when they're trying to understand what the job of a startup is at at day zero is to uh, create a really good plan uh, in the midst of extreme uncertainty and it's that's kind of a, a, a less romantic way of thinking about it, but just a really good plan. And so how are you going to uncover unknown unknowns? How are you going to build a process by which you ask smarter questions with each turn of the wheel? And so figuring out how and whether or not somebody had a capacity to make a good plan was something that I had to learn how to evaluate better. And I didn't realize that at first. I thought it was just metrics at the very, very beginning. And then I thought it was just resume. And then I thought it was just, um, you know, a little bit of like Keynesian beauty contest type of dynamics. Uh, and then I thought it was just what's hot. And there's actually interesting lessons within each one of those. But what I've since come to conclude is evaluating whether or not somebody's going to ask smarter questions and if they're building a true learning machine very early and if they're going to discover a series of insights that will form the bedrock of hypotheses that they can build a business on top of, that was the thing that I sort of had to learn most urgently. And that was the one that I was furthest from when I got started, mm. just on the evaluation standpoint. I think maybe my learning in this regard is more recent, sadly, <laughs> or maybe over the last couple of years. But I've come to believe that I call it actually, rather than plan, I just call it like prioritization. Like how well in a founder how well do you think a founder can just prioritize totally. in the early days totally like how well can they understand what's a and then b and then c in the plan and i think about that all the time now and it's hard enough in structured worlds to be very busy but not be productive but in a world where there's literally no structure 
it's massively hard to separate busy and productive. And so at the very beginning of a startup and in the early days, there's an infinite list of things you could do that move the ball forward, so to speak. But which are the ones that are really going to move the ball forward? Which are the ones that are really going to start to answer questions for you? And which are the ones that are going to adjust your trajectory properly? And that's strategy, you know? And I think that uh, strategy is to some extent undervalued in evaluating teams. Uh, you know, we, we think of you know, pure engineering horsepower and we think of creative brilliance, but just pure strategy is actually really important. And being able to assess that in a founder is really important. And so that's one thing that I started thinking deeply about. And to that point, I actually now say that I like people who can apply a system uh, and can, can use systems thinking in ways that are creative because they know when something's working and they have a hypothesis as to why. Because if you know something's working, but you don't know why, then it's going to be really hard to instrument and improve it, you know? And so I do think I do increasingly value systems over the course of the last eight years, but that started then because I was trying to figure out how to, how to make sense of it. And I thought, well, it's a lot of the two-dimensional stuff about a resume or about the graphs in a deck that are going to constitute somebody being fundable. And I've come now to think about that quite differently. This is kind of an aside. Um, maybe I'll cut this from the podcast, but how do you think about or maybe measure your own improvements over time? Because obviously data is hard to come by, like real data and kind of noisy as a VC. So I'm curious, particularly in the early years and maybe, and maybe now we'll get to Kindred, I assume you feel like you're a better investor. How do you, what, what like pieces do you think are maybe in your, in your toolkit now that, that give you confidence that you're, that you're fundamentally better at this than when you first started? No, that's such a, that's such a important question. And it's probably the thing I think about most frequently at this point. And what I've concluded is I think that internal consistency is the thing I value the most uh, structurally when I, when I think about my own improvement, which is to say that I've now come to realize that the reason why I did make that affirmative investment decision in that company that went on to be 10x or 50x or 100x, I'm going to start to tell myself some, some fibs about that as time goes on. I'm going to start to persuade myself that the reasons that I, that I decided to make that investment or the analysis that I underwent at that moment in time is actually not what it was. Uh, I'm, and, and we all do that. We do that all the time. And so how do I make sure that I'm actually matching against uh, a historical data point that's true? Because if you're not matching against true data points, then your graph isn't even a graph, right? And so one of the things that's been the most important that I wish I had done earlier and that I think has been the greatest impact on my improvement is documenting everything painfully. Hmm. And I document everything painfully now because I don't trust my own, I don't trust my own memory. And I don't trust my own cognitive function. I don't think I'm not going to trick myself. And I think we all have to as you know, psychological hacks for us to, to stay alive and to validate our egos and to, and to keep a healthy perspective on the world. But I think it's so important to have intellectual honesty. And that starts with internal consistency, just knowing where you are and knowing where you really were. And so to that point, when I'm evaluating a company, I now take notes and then as soon as I finished taking those notes, I structure them and I structure them apples to apples so that I can compare them against the notes from a year ago. And that has made such a big difference just in my confidence, because I know that when I'm making a decision now or when I'm reflecting on a decision from before, 
it's it's fact and or it's data. And at minimum, there's an objective third party, which is my notes that I can use as the arbiter of the truth, you know? Well, it also sounds like process. Totally. Like you actually have internal individual process now. Totally. And it's in, internal and the internal part is important. So, you know, one of my favorite ideas about conviction, so conviction is a, a, a term that's thrown around in venture a lot and conviction is a gut feeling, but it's a gut feeling that's only useful if you can articulate it really persuasively. And so the articulation is actually just as important a part of conviction as the gut. Hmm. And so I have, I, and so I've had a pretty good time with the gut part, but I've had to develop a much better version of the articulation part. And so writing stuff down and figuring out exactly which thing I was pointing at in how the founder was thinking about the market, the shape of the market, the trends at the time uh, has become so important to my process. And I think that is making me better. How about at the, at the fund level? Cause I, you know, it sounds like that was both you and Craig's first institutional fund. And this was what, 2012, 2013, maybe at the fund level, there's we we went through so much learning over the course of our time at collaborative fund and we were fortunate to have amazing mentors and one of the things that we learned was uh, the extent to which um, fund size dictates strategy and that the difference between uh, a one million dollar ten million dollar twenty million dollar and a fifty million dollar fund at seed could conceivably be the difference between infinite paths to drive great returns and only three paths or something like that and and so that you know was something that we learned acutely because we were in the in the fortunate position of being able to scale relatively fast fund over fund, and so as we did, uh, the nature of the math and the impact on our ability to drive returns was something that uh, we were learning as we were building the plane as we were flying it. But it was a huge difference, and it's not even obvious to a number of LPs unless they specialize in micro VC, which is thought of as anything under a hundred million, but the difference between a $90 million fund and a $20 million fund is literally night and day. Yeah. And so at the, that's the first big, big, big thing. The second thing is the concentration question. Uh, and so concentration is something that I think so much about now as a, you know, as an, as a new fund manager in Kindred Ventures with Steve, and we were thinking about, you know, in my, in my prior firm, but I, I realized that concentration is one of those things where if you lean into the fear then the upside can be asymmetric. And so each additional point of ownership that you buy in a winner, uh, each additional incremental dollar that you allocate correctly into a company that goes on to be successful has a multiple and it has a multiplicative effect on a, on a fund's performance. And so, so often I now hear and finally I'm starting to grok this concept that emerging fund managers concentrate too little and so they don't get enough of the benefit of that multiplicative effect. And what I used to say was, well, I have to earn the right to concentrate. Uh, and I think the right way to earn the right to concentrate is by concentrating and is by taking real bets. And so the second sort of feature separately to the fun size one is just like getting more comfortable with leaning into the fear of concentrating uncomfortably. Uh, and that means different things for everybody sort of with their strategy. But in my case, and with you know Steve and I at Kindred Ventures, you know, if we see most of our peers doing 30 to 40 investments, we think, well, can we do 20 to 25? And not only that, but can we push towards like maybe 18 to 20 core and early, not when they're already break out. And then as they break out, then we're going to really try and lean into the multiplicative effect of that incremental dollar being concentrated into those winners. And so that's a, a it's almost a psychological feature of investing, but is a really important structural thing that 
I've come to learn and that, you know, we had to learn over the course of our time at Collaborative Fund as well. Yeah, but that, that, that also probably stems from more confidence as a, in your own process and, and as an individual investor, right? Like you can, you have more confidence to take risk once you actually have real confidence in your own individual process. Totally. And, you know, and, and that's, you know, you bring up a great point and that also speaks to another learning that I had, which is that none of these levers operate in a vacuum. Right. And each yeah. one gives, and yeah. each one gives the other one a more a ballast point. Right? Yeah. And so, if if I'm interested in buying more ownership, concentration will help. If I'm interested in investing with more conviction, buying more ownership will allow me a deeper relationship with a founder, which will give me stronger data points to be able to create architecture and actual articulation of my conviction. Right. And so these things are actually all really intimately tied to each other. And so actually just getting a better sense for how they're all actually work to create a lattice uh, and a framework is, is something that I've, I've finally started to, to noodle on more, more productively, but that has been a process because it was, you know, and I think this is important too. And I think that, you know, getting into the right deals and, you know, from people outside of venture capital, picking is overrated because seeing deals, winning deals and helping companies are really important, but within venture capital, Picking really matters. Yeah. You got to get the pick right. And so if you just have a good nose and can just pick right, if you just like have a little bit of a rabbit's foot, unpopular as that is to say, that's super, super, super powerful. And so we sort of really indexed on that in a good way over the course of the early portion of my career. And I think it's an important thing. It's like your jump shot. If right. you don't have that jump so shot. Maybe that's, maybe that's something that hasn't changed. Because I, I have to remind myself of this sometimes too, is like, I think one of the, fascinating parts about the venture capital practice in my in my view is that the further i've gotten i realize like the the deeper the rabbit hole gets in terms of strategy and it really is complex it's and it, and like you said all the pieces have to fit together like kind of a puzzle and it is i i've been pleasantly surprised by the art of venture capital as i do it you know longer year year over year but I do try to remind myself often that like ultimately it comes down to just picking great companies. Like you need to invest in really good companies because you can get the whole strategy right. But if you don't do that, it, it doesn't really matter, right? The analogy I always use is it's like basketball. If you don't have somebody with a J, somebody with, who can just hit a jump shot, you can rebound, you can run a zone, you can, you got great strategy, you can have tall players, but you just, and sometimes when you've got somebody with a J, that person catches fire. When someone catches fire, throw them the ball. That's it, right? And so sometimes it's just as simple as if you've got a nose and you get the tingling sensation, you got to lean into that. And that actually requires sort of counter to this notion of getting the structure just right and making sure you're tuning it properly. That actually requires a little bit of irreverence, I believe. Mm. It requires a little bit of like, oh, I'm just going to let that one happen. We got to just do that, which is why we always say at Kindred Ventures, we have to be disciplined, but not dogmatic. Because you got to allow enough of that at the edge to say, you know what? My nose is telling me we got to take this shot and it's going to go in. Right? And yeah. so we'll see how those play out. And you don't always hit those, but you got to allow yourself to take it. So tell me about Kindred. What's Kindred? Yes, of course. So Kindred Ventures, um, it's a $56 million fund. Uh, this is fund one. Um, Steve had Kindred Ventures LLC for a number of years prior to us partnering, and 
he was aspirational about being able to uh, find a, a, a fund partner and put together a new fund around it. And his thinking, which sort of mirrors mine, so I'll start with it, was having somebody who had come from a seed practice and who had been thinking about venture capital, but uh, wasn't too encumbered by some of the institutional memory around how seed and or venture capital was supposed to work at the operational level with a founder. Uh, would be a great partner for him because he had been a prolific investor, an amazing nose, great entrepreneur, but hadn't actually worked at or, or managed um, an institutional platform. And I was looking for someone who had what I refer to as a great distance traveled operationally. So someone who had just seen a lot of stuff with respect to entrepreneurship, had seen amazing growth, had seen founder breakups, had seen uh, colos and hatchbacks prior to AWS had seen the you know, multiple technology waves and who could really advise on the basis of true experience and thereby bring true empathy. And then what we both also wanted was what I sort of lovingly refer to as not missing the forest for the fees. And so it was to build a platform that was focused and to build a platform that was focused on doing something, doing it well and doing it well for a long time by not uh, deviating too much. And uh, there seems to be a trend and, you know, we all, we all have seen the stats of how venture capital and particularly seed stage and so-called emerging managers, you know, are in a capital agglomeration business these days as yeah. much as they are in, you know, in a, in a true practice. And so we wanted to just build a practice and we want that practice to be focused on hiring your first people, figuring out what you're going to build, building it, getting a couple people to use it, and then raising another round. And that's it. And we want to be hyper-focused in that. And so, and the earlier we do it and the more sort of intimately and tightly we can couple and partner with entrepreneurs, the better. And so we came together to do that. And you know, it's been an amazing learning experience. You know, this was the first time where I was, along with Steve, you know, co-managing a, a fundraise as a, as a true managing partner. And I, I learned quite a few things about myself and about fundraising and about the market, which, which were surprises. Because it's interesting, right? Because... You had kind of seen it at Collaborative. You were in deep with Craig, and then, like, I think even us, like, even fund to fund has been a new set of learnings. Totally. You know, like, each actually now, you know, Alex and I, my partner, were joking recently that this most recent fundraise, like, we would have sworn we knew the ins and outs and, like, learned a whole nother set of learnings again. So... Yeah, I'm curious how you kind of brought your experience from collaborative into into kitchen and, and maybe things that were surprising and not surprising. Well, the process stuff was expected. And so it'll take, you know, it's hard to do it in less than a year. It's going to take a year. And you need to have a data room and you need to have these pieces. And this is what it means to have a track record. And this is what attribution means. And this is how the references are going to work. Like some of the muscle memory of the fundraise uh, that piece I had, you know, I had a, a good angle on. It, it was more actually a matter of um, what an LP was trying to understand uh, that I found to be surprising. And so there were certain aspects of our fundraise where I was expecting, oh, they're going to really double and triple click on these set of things. And I was surprised by how how little that matched to the reality of what they double and triple clicked on. What were the things that that you thought? What were those things? Like track. Uh, I thought they would. I, well, I, I thought, yeah, more of the bean counting. Yeah. And so I thought there'd yeah. be a lot more bean counting in evaluating the quality of the manager. And uh, you know, Chris Chris Duvos, um, who's not an LP with us, but is a is a close friend, said something along the lines of, which makes perfect sense. It's like, well, why would I 
look backwards to try and make a judgment on forwards. And my, my initial instinct was, well, because what else are you going to look at? Uh, right. But the truth of the matter is, well, what you have to try and do is you have to understand the present. You have to understand the person. And you have to understand if their plan and their story, and then some of the history all fits into a narrative that all that is really cohesive and really tight. And then if you have to decide whether that fits your own allocation model and allocation needs. And I underestimated the extent to which any individual LP's allocation model and allocation needs needed to fit like a glove into my own internal consistent story or into our fund's story. And so learning that was one big surprise. The other big surprise in terms of what I thought they were going to care about, but that they cared about differently was I'm surprised by the extent to which LPs relied on other GPs for context, for perspective, for reputation. And in retrospect, it makes sense because it's an access constrained industry. It's a capacity constrained industry. And there are certain funds that are in one part of the distribution, which drives all the outcome. And so it stands to reason that it's in some ways a little bit of a club and only a few people come in and out of that door at any given moment. So either you're on the way in that door or you're not. And now that I have sort of thought about that from the standpoint of the LP, because of the fact that it's so capacity constrained and there's so few participants in venture that actually really drive returns, that does make more sense to me. But I didn't, I didn't, there were so many GP, gosh, there were probably 25 GPs, about three or four of which were on my list who would reach out and say, oh yeah, I just got a call from so-and-so LP who's wondering about you. I'm like, wait, but you and I, wait, really? And it, because they were really calling a lot of yeah other other gps right and so and you know and i wouldn't have thought oh gosh well if i network my way with lots of other gps that's going to be really productive mm. for because it's more a matter of entrepreneurs and a matter of the builders and the scientists and you know the gadzooks and the future the future facing people yeah and that that part is really weird right because it's basically like your competitive set deciding whether or not you should let you in, in. totally and then we wonder why it's, you know, it's such a homogenous business, you know, demographically. And, and I think that's a, a very big component of it. And there's some structural stuff too, but that's a big one, which is that GPs have so much capacity to, uh, to invite emerging managers into, into the fold. You know, and now that we're, you know, fortunate to be on the other side of, of some, some fundraisers, even though we're emerging managers, of course, you know, we get those calls too, right? And we have to think, well, gosh, Am I going to say this is one of the best managers I've ever worked with or not? And that's and that has extreme leverage in the market. And so that really surprised me. Yeah. You've been now up and running with Kindred for a year, two years? Uh, about a year and a half on Kindred. Yep. How's it going? Going great. I'm really glad there's two of us. Uh, really, really glad yeah. there's two of us because uh, at any given moment, I feel like um, Steve is my editor. And so I'm just writing the stream of consciousness and he's editing it down or vice versa. And so something like whether or not we're pacing too slowly or pacing too fast, there's no objective standard to that. Uh, one can benchmark it against the market, but the truth is that's not going to be the right answer. The right answer is going to have so many factors that are psychological and personal and driven by the manager and their relationship with their partners. Uh, whether or not you know, our median ownership is high enough, whether or not we're concentrating enough, whether or not we're over-concentrating. These are, you know, psychological issues as much as they are, as much as they are tactical ones. And so being able to have another person who can challenge me and who can critique me and who can also comfort me through those things 
has been absolutely life-changing. I'm so grateful for that. You know, the market is really fascinating to be entered into at this time because, you know, what you and I used to talk about is how anyone who started investing in 2010, 11, or 12 was up and to the right with a lot of paper gains up until December of 2019. Yeah. Pretty much anybody, right? And I think that the muscle memory and the lessons and the habits and even just the, the details that one focuses on in that type of environment are different than the details that one focuses on in today's environment. And so we as emerging managers and or managers who you know, are, are eight years or less in this business um, have, to, have to sort of adjust to a new type of muscle memory, have to, have to start to dance a new dance. And that's been a really, you know, frankly, a, little, a fun exercise, but a little bit of a scary one too, because uh, there's some movements that I'm making which are unnatural, but I know are right. Hmm. Uh, and so there'll be times where I'll say, no, no, you actually need to overcapitalize here and think about cash and think about runway a lot more defensively, where three years ago, that wouldn't have been the appropriate strategy. And so it feels weird saying it, but it actually is certainly the intellectually correct thing. And so being able to distinguish that and being able to stay focused while saying something that your gut is not even used to is a really important exercise uh, that I think all of us in our peer group yeah. are learning right now. So I want to get to the market in a sec, because obviously there's a lot to talk about there. Just quickly on the partnership, you know, Collaborative was, I think at some, at one point, or it still is in a number of partners across a number of different disciplines. You know, you and Steve now have been in some ways through this like formative experience with each other, starting Kindred from scratch. How do you think about adding partners to that, if ever? It's a good question. Um, we're... And as is typically the case with two-person firms, um, you know, we're a consensus-driven firm, and so the only way uh, the only way to the other side is through. So I haven't been a part of an investment decision at Kindred that didn't require both of us to affirmatively yes, and he hasn't been a part of an uh, of an operational decision that didn't require affirmatively yes, and that's important for both of us because it means that we sort of equally sort of emotionally own uh, every piece of the process from fund one through now. And so doing that for a person is going to be really hard. Right. And we started looking for a potential third partner before we had even started working together, just frankly, as an exercise in what does it look like to work through a decision that has two or three extra vectors of complexity to them, right? You know, and it did reveal for both of us in good ways um, a, a number of biases and proclivities and preferences that were mutually constructive and some of which which were not perfectly aligned. And that's a good thing because you know, that creative tension is where we both learn about each other and also learn about what's best. And I think that the, a little bit of creative tension is where you know you get sharpened and is where you really can move forward with intellectual honesty. And so we're going to have to apply that process with a little bit more precision and a little bit more uh, proactiveness um, when we do bring on a third person, should we? But thus far, nobody has risen to the surface of being a serious candidate yet because it's that hard. So what are you doing in this market? Um, and for context, because I imagine folks will listen to this podcast hopefully years from now, we're, I think, May 1st. May 1st, May Day. Yeah, May, May 1st, 2020, we are about two months into uh, an awful 
global health crisis and pandemic and coronavirus uh, that that obviously has um, massive implications for businesses um, and startups. So and funds and VCs. And so, yeah, I'm really I'm, I mean, particularly given that you're about a year and a half in, you have some existing portfolio, but it's still relatively small in the grand scheme of things in terms of number of companies. How are you both advising startups and also thinking about managing Kindred and, and the path forward? First thing that we've been saying to founders that we've been advising is you're going to need more than you think you do. Yeah. And we've been saying that for two reasons. One reason is um, founders and frankly, venture capitalists too, in their own way, are fundamentally almost by necessity optimists. And so we, we always want to take the sunnier side of the coin and operate as though that's the, that's the true side. And I think it's our job as thoughtful partners to be the countervailing force against that optimism today, just out of, on principle, right? Just on principle. But the second reason is this moment that we're in right now is a really scary one to where we started this conversation in that we're looking at an unemployment level, which is not seen by anyone in the United States alive, period. And, and that is something for which we don't have any context. We don't have any cultural consciousness. We don't have institutional memory. And so what that's going to result in is not something that any one of us can predict. And what I often say uh, as an analogy to some founders is uh, when you're operating in good times, cash is like oxygen and you're a deep sea diver. And so you got to know how far down you're going and you got to make sure you can come back up. Cash in times like these is like oxygen and you're an astronaut. And so if you, if you run out, you're going home mm. and you, you're not coming back, you're going home. Yeah. And if you run out before that, you're going, you're going to the other home. Right. And so it, is, and I keep saying these analogies just because I want um, us to all sort of start to think about this, this notion of staying alive and surviving. And because if you're at an unemployment level of that type, then what that's going to do to demand, what's that going to do to social cohesion, what that's going to do to our um, political system and how we think about uh, supporting our leaders, electing our leaders, what type of leaders get elected in these environments. There's no memory in the United States for this. And it could go any way. And so that's the first thing I'm thinking about. And the second thing I'm thinking about is venture capital operates in the very deep, deep, deep seas of the economy because we're building three, five, 10 years out. And so the thing that's happening quarter over quarter in terms of its impact on uh, our businesses is not cyclical to today. It's cyclical to a future cycle that nobody can predict. And so it's counter-cyclical in that way. And seed is the most pronounced version of that. You know, we're the furthest out. Yeah. And so the demand and the, in the, the sort of buyer environment and the suppliers and the supply chains and the nature of the economy when most of the investments we've made in the last 18 months starts to you know, start to manifest and start to become of sufficient scale as to be really meaningful is completely unknown. And we shouldn't over tilt into over predicting on the quarter to quarter basis. We should 
stay disciplined on building great fundamentals for our companies. And those great fundamentals mean hiring the best possible people you can, making sure you have enough oxygen, which is cash, and making sure that you're building a learning machine, uncovering unknown unknowns at an accelerating rate. And so we are also advising our companies to stay calm and focused. And we're trying to do the same. And so our investors, uh, we're fortunate to have institutional investors who are sophisticated, recognize that counter-cyclicality and in fact invest against it quite explicitly. And so they know that us being calm and focused in a moment like this and trying to be hyper-rational about the sheer fact that what's happening right now doesn't mean that a seed stage company 10 years from now is suddenly negatively impacted and thereby I need to not panic and not freeze and not suddenly withdraw my cash or suddenly go way too fast or suddenly go way too slow, I think is really, really important for us to remember. Are you doing anything tactically different right now as a firm? Yes, we are. And it's mostly around communication. And so venture capital firms are double-sided marketplaces, right? We, we have clients uh, who are you know, the lifeblood of our business and we have founders who are the lifeblood of our business in equal measure. Uh, and so we're communicating more frequently with more specificity and we're at a higher quantification level on both sides. And so what percentage of our portfolio is at what state of play is not something that on a monthly basis, my limited partners necessarily care about in a different environments today. It's really useful to them because they're trying to get a sense at the aggregate level of the health of their portfolios because they're trying to figure out what their allocations are going to look like and whether they're going to balloon or not, and whether their illiquidity is undercounted or overcounted on the basis of those things. On the other hand, you know, we're talking to our portfolio companies about whether or not cost-cutting measures are appropriate, whether or not they can do them empathetically, how to coach them through doing that, because we've had to, we've had to do those types of things before. And then also for them to know when to play offense and when to be more enthusiastic about their going markets. And so we're communicating a lot more based on the sort of incremental math as the data changes in their performance, in their runway, in their cash balance, in their cash flows to both sides of the market than we typically would. So that's the biggest tactical change. And I think that that has a big impact because it results, you know, your communication cadence with LPs is as much a, a part of the structure of your business uh, as anything. When that suddenly changes, then the structure of your business changes too. And similarly, your communication cadence with your founders is a big part of the value-added service. If you're a once-a-quarter board meeting, that's very different than if you're you know, every other day text message, right? And so communication cadence and the form factor of that communication actually speaks to the nature of the time more than almost anything else. Any changes to portfolio construction? Like we talked about, you know, concentration and reserves and, you know, from notations perspective, we probably haven't made any significant changes yet, but thinking about it. And, you know, I think, I think at least speaking for us, our, the challenge is if we reserve significantly more for the portfolio, that means it's more concentrated uh, as in we have less capital for new investments and new companies, which feels a little scary, right? Because you're becoming more concentrated in a scary environment. So we haven't made any specific decisions there, but that that's something that, that we're thinking about actively. My general principle, Nick, on that is if I'm not adaptive to changing conditions, then I have my head in the sand. If I'm 
too adaptive to changing conditions, then I didn't design a lasting strategy. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's a Goldilocks level in there, um, which, which, one has to, which one has to set. And so specifically as it relates to reserves, you know, we, we went into market being slightly over-reserved and we were slightly over-reserved just because just defensively, just, you know, to some extent out of sheer luck. And so the question for us then becomes, should we stay slightly over-reserved or should we try and pull a little bit of that dry powder to lengthen our pacing and dollar cost average more into this part of the cycle or, you know, which is going to, you know, obviously have lower asset prices or, should we over-reserve a little bit more and try and make sure that we can be in cash preservation and an asset preservation mode for our existing portfolio? And right now, our view is that knob is going to be turned 2 to 5% one way or another. Uh, it's not going to be turned 10. And if we have to turn it one way, I think it makes more sense for us to turn it into slight over-reserve. But again, if we have to turn it 10, 15% in that one direction or another, then I think that's actually a reflection of our strategy and to some extent a reflection of whether or not our strategy is resilient than it is a, a reflection of, of the times. You, you mentioned asset prices coming down. A month ago, I think we would have had this conversation and I would have argued strongly that seed and pre-seed would look really different like now or soon, like maybe a month from now. And I'm starting to think it's a ways out. And so my question is, yeah, how do you think this will change early stage, particularly seed investing, if at all? The, the main way I think it will is I think that a founder, all other things being equal, will take more dilution now than they otherwise would have. I don't necessarily think that the market clearing price is going to go that much further down. Um, I just, I don't think it is because there's not that much further down for it to go. To go from five to four isn't that material. And then in, in terms of the capital efficiency and the amount of cash necessary for a business, I think that may go down a little bit, but that one's really hard for me to predict because that has to do with things like real estate prices and things like the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google's salaries and how competitive you have to be to be able to hire into this market. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a little bit above my pay grade. But I do believe, and I've already noted, that if 20 to 25% dilution was an upper bound for, you know, for a founder in a, in, a prior, in a prior generation, for a strong founder, maybe 15% was an upper bound. I think those numbers are going to adjust up. And so that's where I think there's going to be an adjustment in how big of an ownership you can get uh, in a company. And, and so it may require a modestly bigger check, but that's going to result, I think, in, in higher ownerships for about the same price, which does make a difference. You know. Now the last question. What, how do you think about the next five, 10, many long years? How do you think about Kindred? How do you think about your role as a VC and how that may evolve over time? I think that happiness is repetition. If I love something enough that I can do it forever, then I've found nirvana. So I'm building a set of practices and muscle memory. And Steve and I are building a culture and the habit where 90% of it can and should be the same forever. 
And then the 10% is going to be the consistent improvements that we're making on a daily basis or consistent improvements that we're making on a weekly basis in how we communicate with each other, how we communicate with the market, how we communicate with founders, how we work with founders, how we source, et cetera. And so if I've designed this right and if I've been thoughtful, then there's not going to be that much change. There's going to be constant change, but it's not going to be in great magnitude. So that's the first thing I think about. The second thing I think about is at the, is at the macro level, which is I think that the filter bubbles that we've been operating within and that has started to demonstrate more and more vectors of concern politically and socioeconomically and culturally uh, are going to reach a tipping point pretty soon. And so I'm trying my hardest to be empathetic across demographics and to spend time with people unlike me because those bifurcations are stretching intensely. And the people with the haves and the people with the have-nots, the people who know something about science and the people who know something about bio and people who know something about computer science and economics, these bifurcations, I think in part driven by specialization, in part driven by the rise in inequality and in part driven by the sort of hyper growth environment that we just came out of over the last 15 years is going to present some sort of scary societal issues if we're not all conscious of getting outside of our bubbles more. And so I'm going to try and spend a lot more time outside of my bubble just so that I can have a better perspective. Thank you, sir. You're the best. Thanks, Nick. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Carta for being our title sponsor. I'm sure you're familiar with Carta. Carta changed the way private companies manage their cap tables and 409A valuations. Companies and venture firms like Robinhood, Flexport, and USV use Carta to manage billions of dollars in equity. Carta also offers fund administration services for investors now. We use Carta at Notation and recommend it to all our companies. Save time running your back office with Carta. Get 10% off at carta.com slash notation. Terms and conditions apply. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues, and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.